Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashness and Guy Wilkinson. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the IB Green Minds podcast. My name is Phoebe Scott, and today I'm joined by Dr. Swenya Siminski. Swenya is Deputy Director and Head of Adaptation Research at the Granton Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the LSE, overseeing social science research projects on climate adaptation, loss and damage of climate change, and disaster risk finance. Prior to joining the LSE in 2010, Swenya spent more than 10 years in the insurance industry working on climate and risk management including roles at Munich Re, Marsh McLennan and the Association of British Insurers. Swenya was also a visiting academic at the Bank of England and worked on their first ever report on climate change. She was previously a Fulbright Scholar in the US, studying ecological economics and international relations at the University of New Hampshire. And in 2002, she received a PhD in political science from Hamburg University for her work on climate change in the insurance industry. So Swenya, welcome to the Green Minds podcast and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, hello. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much. So I thought it'd be useful to start off by talking about your career to date. And how do you feel that your transition between the private sector and academia has helped you to develop your career to where you are today? Thanks for the question. I mean, I guess I see myself as sort of sitting at the, you know, at the juncture where industry and academia meet. And that's pretty much what my focus is also on, to, to support that whole engagement, but also to, to foster better understanding. So I guess, yeah, having having worked in the private sector and sort of understanding what the needs are, how decisions are being made, what kind of information you need, you know, where the limitations are. I mean, I think that is usually beneficial and has really also informed and shaped basically my work. And the other aspect is all my research is always very applied. And, you know, there's always kind of a thought like, how can this be useful for decision makers? Or is this useful for industry or so on? So that just comes naturally, I think. And it's great, because particularly in this area around climate change, I guess there has been also a bit of a development on different speeds and different languages between academia and, and industry and policy. So I think that's important to try and translate between the two and then bring those together. I think, as you mentioned, it's really valuable to have this kind of dual insight and how the different well, the private and public and academic sectors feed into each other and how they interrelate. And it's obviously a lot easier to do that when you have experience of the different sectors yourself. So that's really helpful. Has there been a particular role or research project in your career to date which you have enjoyed the most? And why have you enjoyed that one the most as well? Well, picking winners, I think, wouldn't be fair because I genuinely really excited about the the research I'm doing and you know this was also partly the reason why I actually went back into academia because not only do you have you know much more freedom to select the type of research and the questions and the methodology than if you're working in the private sector but I find it also very rewarding and luckily my research spans sort of different well, not just different geographies. I mean, we've just had a really exciting project with farmers in India and we did some field works and, you know, sitting down with farmers and trying to understand better what resilience means for them, what insurance means for them. You know, that's, I I really enjoy that. But then we're also doing work here in the UK with policymakers, with local authorities around flood resilience and how, for example, a city on the East Coast can be 
better protected, but also become more resilient going forward. And very different contexts, but I, yeah, I really enjoy the mix. And yeah, I could, could tell you a lot of positive stories about basically all my research projects. But, you know, I think it, it is probably one of the big advantages of working in this field that you can also pick the topics that you really find fascinating and, and challenging. It's really interesting that you get to engage with such a diverse range of stakeholders as well. So obviously, as you mentioned, farmers in India on the ground and it's their lived reality in terms of climate change adaptation and resilience, but also then trying to put that into policy and working with governments as well. So it's really interesting combination of, of guilds and elements coming together. And just moving on to talking about insurance, which has obviously been a big theme for you in your past work, but also in your academic research. I was interested in finding a bit more about your roles in the insurance sector when you're working in the sector itself and how you were able to combine your knowledge of financial risk management and climate change in helping your clients. I started working in the insurance industry actually as a student. I did an internship with Munich Re and at that time not many people were actually taking climate change seriously, particularly not across industry. But the reinsurance sector, they've been doing research on this since the late 70s. I think one of the first publications came out in the late 70s around climate change. So I, I used that internship to basically try and understand a little bit more about, you know, what it is, what kind of data they're using. So I, I actually ended up working on a database, which has now informed a lot of research. It's their NatCat database that kind of collects information about natural disasters. And, you know, when I was there as a student, this was basically scanning newspaper articles and, you know, really old fashioned style. But nevertheless, you know, it's a really interesting sort of archive that they set up. And now it's a it's highly digitalized and, and very useful database. And yeah, sort of from moving on from that, I, I then actually also did a graduate program. I joined Marsh McLennan, which is an insurance brokerage firm. And I think that was actually, that was a bit of a detour away from climate change, but more into, yeah, the world of risk management. And I worked with clients, with brokers, with underwriters, and you kind of need to understand how you, well, how you quantify risk, how you basically also sell risk management to insurers. And that was, I think, you know, that was a really good way of understanding how risk and insurance actually work. And yeah, I, I think I, I learned a massive amount during that time. And yeah, it was, was really insightful. And then I ended up working for the Association of British Insurers on policy questions. And that's, again, sort of where climate change then came up and also lobbying government on behalf of the insurance industry to take climate risk more seriously, to do more around flood in the UK and manage flood risk. So yeah, I think all of that together you know, it has been quite an interesting journey and has prepared me for my current research portfolio, I think. Just touching on the points you were talking about regarding climate risk, what do you feel are the biggest climate risks facing the insurance sector at the moment? Well, this has actually moved on. I mean, the whole discussion around climate risk has, has hugely accelerated. And I think there has also been a seismic change even over the last two years. So traditionally, this was mostly about physical risk, you know, the sort of natural disasters, you know, are they becoming more severe, more frequent? And that was kind of the question and whether or not this will have impacts on insurance underwriting and, you know, the way you structure products and so on. I think that's still part of the, the discussion. But now, obviously, you know, it's, it's also a question of what does the industry do in terms of their own investment strategy? This whole question of 
stranded asset and managing net zero. And then also on the liability side, some insurers are also quite worried about the litigation that might come their way if they don't take enough action on climate change. And that together gives you sort of a spectrum. And then I think it's kind of products, investment and relationship with clients, I think, which are the sort of areas where the challenges, but also some opportunities are for the sector. I was also curious, have you noticed anything a trend in terms of liabilities that they're facing due to natural disasters increasing over time? Is it quite a clear trend or is there some variability? If you look at the way that they are tracked or we are tracking losses and, you know, the cost of natural disasters, you know, that that is increasing. One needs to be careful on how one interprets that, because this is not just a climate change signal, but this is also about exposure and also vulnerability. So I, I always say when you talk about climate risk, you need to understand it matters where we build, how we build, what kind of stuff we put into harm's way, and then how we manage that, you know, how vulnerable cities, communities and businesses are. And then you have climate change on top of that. So that just gives you a feeling for, you know, how many factors are at play when you talk about risks to insurers and who then underwrite some of these risks. So that's important to to understand that. And that's also why it is actually so difficult for insurers also and for their clients to really unpick these different risk drivers. And I think that's, we, we've come some way, but, you know, there's still a long way to go to also help them understand how these things are kind of interacted and reinforcing the different drivers. But, you know, the key thing is to then think about, does this mean you change your underwriting strategy? Does it mean you change your price? But also, does it mean you change your investment approach as an insurer? And this is kind of where currently, you know, in there's more focus on and I think rightly so because you know you can't just be worried about climate change because it affects your underwriting portfolio but happily invest in you know polluting industries or as a property investor create you know new infrastructure and exposed areas along the coast so I think this is now slowly coming together and some insurance companies have been sort of quite outspoken and are leading the way and have been also quite committed to be sort of net zero or having very clean investment portfolios, but particularly the smaller ones are really not there and are just starting to look into this now. It's a really interesting point regarding the holistic nature of insurers. As you mentioned, it's not just their underwriting insurance capabilities, it's also their capacity in the market as asset managers, and they obviously feed into the wider financial markets in that aspect. I was wondering how you felt the insurance sector and maybe in their roles asset managers here versus other asset managers or pension funds and central banks, investment banks, just other aspects of the financial sector, how you felt that insurers were prepared to deal with climate change in the next 30 to 100 years as opposed to the rest of the financial sector? Yeah, that's it's, it's a really good question. And I don't think there's a very clear answer to that. I think when you compare the sort of risk knowledge and understanding around climate change you know if you would have asked me that question a year ago or two years ago I would have said look the insurance industry you know they have a lot of risk knowledge they have a lot of tools they can understand climatic trends much better than other assets managers and I think to some extent that's still true whether or not they then take action on that knowledge and whether they use that knowledge for business decisions is another question because 
And this is where it becomes complicated. On the insurance side, you're usually focusing on 12 months cycle. So yes, you kind of recognize that climate change is there, but does it material change risk over the next 12 months? That's the question that, you know, if you're an underwriter, you're asking yourself. And I think compared to some other parts of the financial sector who are kind of catching up with understanding risk knowledge and investing in risk models. I would argue there's also a degree of, well, maybe a risk, a little bit of complacency because insurers think they have the physical risk under control and, you know, their their models tell them that this is more a long-term issue. I think there's a bit of a, a challenge there and particularly more recently with disclosures and this TCFD process, insurers have been a bit quieter and and less active than than other sectors in the financial services industry. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Definitely. It's interesting, as you mentioned, they might seem, they might think that they have a better handle on it, given that obviously risk modelling has been a part of their business as long as insurance has existed. That's a fundamental element of what they do. But what risk they're actually accounting for, what is the kind of, I guess, unknown unknowns? Do you think there's anything that they just are not thinking about at all? Well, I mean, you know, the the industry proudly sort of claiming we know uncertainty, we, we work with uncertainty, that's our bread and butter. And I think the challenges with climate change uncertainty has sort of a different, you know, you need to approach it slightly differently. And there's, there are lots of challenges also in terms of aligning your models with climate change and with the uncertainty there. So I think that's a challenge. But I think why this is so important for the rest of the financial sector is because a lot of banks, a lot of mortgage providers, also a lot of investors, they take insurance for granted and they rely on this. So we've done some work with mortgage providers and for them, flood risk, if you take that as an example, it doesn't really make a big difference because they are assuming that there is flood insurance picking that up. And as long as there is flood insurance, it it doesn't really hurt them. And that was part of the work we did with the Bank of England for their first report. So pointing out there is a systemic risk because you just can't take it for granted because there might be affordability questions, ones might not be available. So You know, I think that it's really important not to have that sort of false sense of security because there might be a level of insurance available right now. But going forward, you can't rely on that as an investor or as an asset owner, as a mortgage provider. Continuing that point, looking at requirements and if it should be driven from governmental policy or if you think it should be driven by insurers getting their act together and thinking our capital buffers aren't sufficient or we think we need to deepen our risk modeling just in a commercial sense as opposed to being imposed by governments what do you think should drive forward preparedness in the insurance sector if you take the sector as a whole it needs to be a regulation because the sector acts if it has to act and it acts across the board if there are certain rules that everybody has to adhere to so i think there's no way around regulation in in this space and i think that's also where we're heading to what you can see at the moment is some of the leaders in the sector trying to shape the regulation and and trying to actually work with regulators which i think is is really useful to set out you know how that could be done. But I think particularly if you want to then engage also the smaller companies and make this part of the way that they assess their liabilities and, the you know, sort of make their strategic decisions, you have to have regulation to guide that. 
that's a very important point in that not every insurer has the scale and the capacity in-house to drive it forward themselves and it needs to be governments that are doing it. Just switching topics slightly onto adaptation, which is obviously still related to insurance, particularly with elements like FlogFest, which you yourself have worked on before. Thinking generally about climate change adaptation developing countries, as you mentioned, you're working with some farmers in India. What would you say are the biggest barriers for adaptation in these countries? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I really enjoy the projects that we have where we collaborate also with colleagues in, in developing countries. But it really also brings home the urgency and the scale of the challenge. And sometimes that's actually, you know, quite quite difficult to remain upbeat and to say, look, we're on the right track and, you know, this is an opportunity and adaptation is is a good strategy because it, for some part of the world, you know, let's face it, the, where we're heading, they're, they're going to reach their adaptation limits and questions about relocating certain cities, certain areas, but also, in fact, some areas are very likely to become uninhabitable. So, you know, it's kind of very sobering when, when you do this work, but it underlines why it is so important, because I think we still have a window to take action and to help particularly those vulnerable communities to be better prepared. So obviously, this is a question of funding and making sure that the adaptation financing flows that have been promised internationally as part of global agreements, Paris, but also like the G7 historic announcements, they really need to come forward and that money needs to flow. But then I think the other point is adaptation only works if it's also mainstreamed. I mean, I always find it really crazy to think that yes we have some adaptation projects but meanwhile on the other side of the city or in another part of the country business as usual continues and you have infrastructure being built in a completely unresilient way or you know you do new investments and they just don't take into account changing risk landscapes so that's another sort of barrier and yeah probably also then using existing knowledge and I guess that's where academia can also help a lot and translating what do we know right now what does it mean for decisions right now and so on and so building capacity that way. Thinking about what more developed nations so the global north arguably could do to help nations most vulnerable to the effects of climate change do you feel that it's more a funding assistance or as you mentioned capacity building technical assistance what I guess the diplomatic answer would be they obviously have to work in tandem, but is there elements that you think are more pressing than others? Is it simply a matter of money that is not available right now? Well, I mean, all of that, because, you know, money is obviously fundamental and to have sufficient finance allocated now and also to take action now, because a lot of these things also need some lead time and you can't just, you know, invest in infrastructure overnight. So that is fundamental. But I guess... And this is going to be interesting for the upcoming COP conference in, in Glasgow. This is becoming now a really important issue where adaptation needs to be supported by funding flows. But at the same time, we need to realize that, you know, with increasing temperatures and with the sort of change that's already in the system, particularly poor countries also need support in dealing with the risk and the impacts right now. And this is kind of under the heading of loss and damage, quite an important area where there's also a lot of political tension because the global north sees this as a 
potentially open-ended stream of requests along the lines of, well, you caused the problem and now you pay for basically fund all this. And I think, you know, this is obviously a huge question around fairness and equity. And the more climate change is actually visible, the more pressing this will be that we'll come up with a sensible way of dealing with, with these losses and damages. And I think, you know, we need really some, some good political solutions for that. And you mentioned COP, obviously that's happening in November this year. Is there anything in particular regarding loss and damage or just wider climate change adaptation policy or elements of COP that you'd like to see be discussed? Yeah, I mean, I think the first point is to really make sure that we have funding mechanisms that work and that are also transparent because what often happens also globally is you have these big announcements and then it's actually quite difficult to track how much money is actually being spent, where that money is, how it's being labelled. So there's also a huge degree of relabeling funds. And, you know, we've just seen here in the UK, obviously, with development aid cuts, how that also plays out. So that's really going to be an important area to make sure that the funds are adequate and are reaching where it's most needed. And this is not just then an obligation to actually spend or pay for it, but then also to make sure for the recipients that it is spent in accordance with local needs. And we're working a lot with communities um, through a project called the Zurich Flood Resilience Alliance, and that operates around, I think, 14 or 15 countries around the world with a lot of NGOs involved. And the idea is really to understand from communities themselves, what their needs are and what what it is that would support their resilience going forward. And that gives you a lot of insights into, you know, that sort of disconnect between local needs and global discussions, which, yeah, I think if we want to address this challenge, then we just need to make sure that that becomes more aligned. Definitely. I just wanted also to touch upon one of your particular interests. You just mentioned the Zurich Flood Alliance, is, which is flooding. And there's been a fair amount in the in media and also in academia about the role of nature-based solutions like mangroves, for example, and how they can help with flooding adaptation. But also at the same time, they have this mitigation element to them that they can help sequester carbon as well. So they seem quite a useful double-edged sword in that sense. I was wondering what your thoughts were on nature-based solutions as part of flooding adaptation mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, as, as you describe, you know, they are hugely beneficial on many fronts. And I think that's actually really encouraging. And there's also now more evidence on what works where, because obviously you can't plant mangroves everywhere. And nature-based solutions come in very different forms and shapes. And often decision makers are also quite unsure, you know, how effective are they? Will it take some time? Well, I've got a flood risk now. So if I install a flood wall, then it will protect me tomorrow. But if I start doing some nature-based stuff, that will take forever. And I don't know whether it's actually going to work. So there are quite a few challenges, I guess, is the right word. And I think we're sort of working with quite a few stakeholders and also trying to better address those challenges. Because I, I just think going forward, it's a massive opportunity and it also helps this whole idea of, well, that's kind of sustainable development, you know, working with nature and realizing how we all also depend on nature and what nature can do rather than do it the opposite as we tended to do, having like, you know, grey infrastructure that comes at a huge cost because it's hugely carbon intensive to, to build flood walls and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we are doing this in at a lot of different levels. And I think going forward, that's one of the promising areas, I think.
it definitely does seem in academia and also media that natural capital is being increasingly foregrounded and preserving biodiversity alongside thinking about getting to net zero just through reducing GHG emissions and thinking about a more holistic picture of the earth in as you know we're kind of all asset managers of nature and we've got to preserve that as well and there's also COP15 in Kunming for biodiversity as well this year so it'll be interesting to see how those two play out. I mean just maybe on that point just a a caveat if you kind of talk to to colleagues that come from that background sort of in in ecology and, and understand also how these different processes work I mean there are sort of two big things to take note of one is obviously climate change is also having an impact on nature and nature's ability to, to basically to do these services for us so that you know that's that's really important and the other is sometimes I think there's also misunderstandings and the way that some of these services are being sort of accounted for and this is my kind of worst fear is that we might have a period where, where there's a huge sort of an over optimistic overstating what nature can do there and then suddenly people realize it and then we'll also all shift back to to the gray solutions and so we need to do this sensibly and carefully I think but also noticing that you know some of these services are actually going down because of climate change itself. That was a very good caveat to make I think definitely what we've learned over the past year in our masters is the importance of tipping points and how intangible they are to predict and for example, uh, like peatland in Siberia and things like that, you don't know when it's going to happen. So scientists have obviously been sounding the alarm on that as well, given that climate change is degrading our natural resources as well, as you, as you said. And just as a last topic, I also wanted to turn to your work with Vivid Economics as your associate principal there. And it was also recently acquired by McKinsey, showing how big companies are also looking to scale up their capabilities in climate change. And I was wondering just what your work there involved and what you were working on clients there with. Yeah, I mean, that sort of relationship is, well, it picks up a lot of the issues that we discussed around climate risk management and adaptation and risk financing and, you know, sort of translating that into strategic propositions for either governments or for companies and it's a really useful way to basically also use your academic knowledge and your research insights and vice versa so I actually learn a lot about while doing these projects that I can then feed into our research so I think it's actually quite (laughs) quite a fruitful exercise and yeah it's it's also actually really interesting because obviously consulting has also different time frame and you know you need to be much quicker and to the point if I might say that with research you have freedom to ponder about certain things a bit longer and you sort of frame the agenda while on the consulting side I mean you're basically driven by demand and by you know what what your client needs and I think it's actually quite good to be able to do both and yeah, I think, you know, a lot of colleagues do this. I mean, I also work with LSE's consulting arm. So I think it's an important area where actually academics can also have significant impact. I think it's fair, definitely insightful for both parties for you to get exposure to the private sector and also governments, but also implement that back into your academic research. So that's a nice benefit for both sides. And I'm also just curious in terms of ensuring tangible climate positive value add. Obviously, these projects might go on for varying timeframes, but 
ensuring that the value add goes on beyond the length of those maybe short term projects? Yeah, I mean, that might be even easier for me, because if I kind of engage in some projects, it's not just dipping in and out. I then have also the chance to maybe take some of the insights I've learned and develop some some research projects on, on the back of that. So I think, you know, that's kind of a fruitful exchange. But obviously, the consulting environment lives from this very quick turnaround and dipping in and out. But I think the key point is that when you work on these cutting edge questions you can really also help companies but also governments to solve problems and also give them then some support in how best to implement it I mean yes sometimes it is frustrating when you have great solutions and you engage with one end of government and everybody's happy but then the implementation gets blocked because well something else was deemed more important and okay but you know, I think by and large, you really have a good chance of influencing either policy or, or company strategy, particularly in this field with climate change, where there is actually huge demand for these kind of support services. That's really positive to hear that you're able to engender more long term change beyond the length of, as you mentioned, these quite typically short term, high intensity projects. That's great to hear. And just a couple of concluding questions, which we aim to ask all our guests. I was wondering if you had any words of advice for any of our listeners interested in a similar career path to yourself. So potentially moving between public and private sectors and academia as well. From where I'm standing, I can only encourage people to experience different sectors and try out different roles. But that comes with a caveat. I mean, if you are determined that you want a full-blown academic career, then all you need to do is basically focus on your academic publications and aim for the professorship somewhere down the line. That wasn't my case. So my career was much more with turns and twists and taking my career pathway across different sectors. And, you know, I find this immensely rewarding and I would encourage people to to do that. But, you know, it has also some challenges, I guess. I mean, what I notice is particularly with kind of students who are coming through sort of master degrees, you know, using your master thesis as kind of like a a test case to see, you know, are you really keen on further research? And then I would say use that as a test case, but then try and get some sort of private sector or, or government insights before you actually then go down the PhD route, because I think that sort of massively also increases your experience and gives you a lot of opportunities to then take your research further if that's what you want to do. But just some fun thoughts, not sure how helpful that is, but it's an area that will require a lot of bright people and with bright ideas. No, thank you. That was super helpful. And I think it's really useful to hear if there are any people listening who are considering a similar career to yourself, or as as you mentioned, a career that has jumped around a bit, but in a really actually productive way for your own and knowledge development but also for the companies and institutions that you've worked with because you'll have a more holistic insight into insurance and climate change and all the stuff that comes with it and just finally if our listeners wanted to take away one thing from this episode of the podcast what do you want it to be well that working on risk and resilience is hugely exciting and dare i say also working on insurance can be hugely exciting and i know that that might come as a surprise and it's often sort of the boring side of the financial services sector but I think particularly in this area with climate change I found it fascinating and I've great friendships great collaborations with people in the sector you know you've been pioneers and have been really 
committed and my time as a PhD student at Munich, we, we've set up a research network of very cross-disciplinary and, and that's still kind of going strong. So, you know, it, it is risk and resilience in the context of climate change is hugely fascinating, but also really, really important. And unfortunately, this is not going to go away. So we need more focus on, on you know, financial ways addressing it, equity and fairness questions around it. So it is unfortunately an area that will see future growth thank you and just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and it's been a pleasure to speak with you well thank you so much for inviting me and actually for running this podcast series i hope this was insightful and if i've convinced someone to maybe look into the climate resilience and risk side then i'm i'm very happy (laughs) great thanks so much